When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibility. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Riddy Clappy. Okay, thank you very much for joining us as we chat to the Naked Scientist. Our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567, Chris, good morning. Hello. Hi there. I've been keeping this email and I, I admire this person's tenacity because they've been sending it every single week and I've just forgotten to share with you. Um, she wants to know, her name is Michelle, she wants to know how do we measure um, the impact of our interventions to reverse global warming? How do we measure that they are working and how soon can that happen? Is it just a drop in, in, in temperatures? Uh, how do we know that we are normalizing and winning the fight? Wow, that's a hard question. And it's almost as hard as the challenge we're trying to solve, which is how do we clean up the mess we're making? It depends very much on what you're measuring. Now, it's really difficult to know exactly what the impact of our activities is on the planet and to quantify it. And therefore, if we don't know how to quantify all these things and we can't possibly study everything, so we don't know how everything is changing, so it's really hard to have an objective measure of how far everything has gone and therefore how well strategies to reverse some of these processes are happening or working but there are some examples that we can uh, explore now probably the best one is the hole over antarctica in the ozone layer this was first picked up in the mid-1980s by a group of scientists including one from the british antarctic survey who are based in cambridge not far from where i live and they noticed that the ozone layer, which filters out the ultraviolet coming through from the sun and makes the light much safer for us here on the Earth's surface, they noticed that that ozone layer appeared to be thinning over Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, we've worked out the chemistry of this, which is that CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, so fluorinated carbon or organic chemicals, which are very widely used in things like aerosol propellants, refrigerators, asthma inhalers even, those chemicals get concentrated in very high clouds over the Antarctic and they have a photochemical reaction. Light coming in from the sun breaks open the molecules, it makes reactive forms of chlorine, they then react with the ozone and break it down. Now, mm -hmm. after this discovery was made, something called the Montreal Protocol came in and this reduced or abolished the use of these CFC chemicals universally or, or as universally as we could achieve. And since that uh, was established, the use of the chemicals has plummeted, the damage to the ozone layer has at least arrested, the hole has stopped growing, and it may even now be shrinking. 
so scientists are able to measure that and monitor it. So that's one objective way that we can do this. Mm. The other is that people are looking at various species and they're looking at various ecosystems around the world and they can see change in action. They're monitoring various environmental parameters. But it's very hard to know if you've monitored everything. It's very hard to see all of the effects and therefore it's very hard to know what is natural evolution and progression and what is our efforts to try to clean up the mess we've made. It's a good question. Okay. Let's go to Judy in Woodmead. Good morning. Hi, Reedy. I'd like to ask Chris, what is the scientific definition of nothing? <laughs> the scientific um, definition of nothing. Never heard that well, question before. Thanks, I, Judy. I could offer you a sandwich from our hospital canteen, um, which if you looked at the sort of nutritional value, that would be nothing. So <laughs> I don't know if there's a, a scientific definition of nothing. I suppose you could say, um, well, mathematically zero is nothing. The universe we think is expanding into nothing because the universe is everything. I don't know. That's a very good question. I think we need a philosopher. That's more a philosophy question than a scientist question, really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cop out. I <laughs> love that. Anyone who has an answer for us, give us, uh, give us a call. Let's go to uh, Temba in Centurion. Hi. Hi. Um, I know this will sound outrageous. You know, why um, the smell, when I, pass, um, when I pass the gas in an open space, it's uh, different from when I pass in the, in the water, especially when I pass. The smell is, is like different when I pass the gas in yeah, an open space I... than uh, in, <laughs> when I pass in the water. Okay, I remember this question before, um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, we dubbed this, why the farts linger longer in the shower uh, or in the bath. Um, um, I would say that in the bath, what happens is that rather than diffusing out through your underpants and your trousers and therefore making its entry to the world in a more spread out way and having the ability to diffuse into a large area. Uh, a fart deployed in the bath between your legs tends to bubble up and it hits you in one big bolus, one go, in high concentration right under your nose because normally people are sitting in the bath so it's much closer anatomically to your nose than it would otherwise be and it's delivered at very high concentration. So I think that's reason number one. In terms of the shower, well, this is a closed airspace, relatively speaking. The air movements are, are restricted because there's a door on the shower. And this means that the relative concentration of the fart tends to be higher and uh, tends to stick around for longer because the air is moving less than it would do in an open space. So I think those are the two main reasons. Okay. Johan in Van der Boom. Hi. Hi. Good morning to everyone. Mm. Uh if an aircraft goes through the sound barrier, it has an image or it, it, it's like a circle. And I would like to know if it goes twice through the sound barrier, does that happen again? Is it the same image or not? Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not quite clear what you mean by image, but if we just look at what actually happens when something starts to travel faster than the speed of sound. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah. Um, okay. So if you think about when an object, like imagine a bell is ringing and the sound waves are coming towards you, they're traveling at the speed of sound in air. Now imagine that I ring the bell and then I move the bell at the same time I'm ringing it and I move it a little bit, then the next sound wave that comes to you is going to actually come slightly closer to the wave in front than it should have done because the bell is ringing and moving. Are you with me so far? Okay. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. 
So now, if I move the bell very quickly, in fact, at the same speed that the sound waves it's producing are moving in the air, then instead of hearing ring, 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 you're just going to hear, for that fraction of a second, one massive great ring, because the bell has moved at the same speed that the sound waves are being emitted by the bell. So instead of getting all the rings coming in succession, you're going to get all the rings hitting you together. And that's a sort of very stripped-down basic explanation for what's happening when an aircraft goes through the sound barrier, because the aircraft is emitting sound waves, and the sound waves are effectively bunching up on top of each other because the aircraft is emitting the next one as the same speed as the the wave is coming to you. And so all the sound waves are effectively arriving in sync at you and sounding very loud. And that's when it breaks the sound barrier and you get a sonic boom. Right. What what I would like to know is if if it goes through the sound barrier and you can actually see the aircraft, it makes uh, 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 like a mist ring behind the aircraft. Now my oh, question okay. is if if it if it goes through the sound barrier twice the speed of sound, does the same I- image will the same image appear behind the aircraft? Well, it shouldn't actually affect the way the aircraft is looking because what's actually happening when it's when it's actually flying along, light from the aircraft is not going to be affected in anything like the same way as, as the sound is. Light no, does get no. Doppler shifted and you are going a little bit closer to the speed of light, so there would be a tiny change, but the actual appearance of the aircraft, because it's not going that fast relative to the speed of light, wouldn't really change. What you may be referring to is that when things are going fast, especially supersonic jets and stuff, they are going to produce pressure changes behind the aircraft, and those pressure changes, um, often what you've got is around the tips of the wings, you have very dramatic falls in pressure, and those dramatic falls in pressure can cause air to condensate, and that mist is air condensating into droplets behind the aircraft. And that, sh- if it w- you know, at the faster the aircraft goes, then you're going to have a greater disturbing effect on the atmosphere and on the pressure. And so you would expect maybe those effects to become a little bit magnified, but that's not the same as breaking the sound barrier. Mm, very fascinating. Thank you very much, Johan. Thanks indeed. Okay, Adam and Ricardo, um, do we have an air break now? No, okay. Adam in Cape Town, hi. Hi, really. Uh, hi to the scientists. I was just going to say that uh, a perhaps philosophical uh, definition of nothing, if not scientific, is a complete absence of anything. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. just words, isn't it, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what philosophy is, isn't it? Words yeah, that's behind like a po- ideas. That's a politician's definition. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's any politicians out there who want to use it, they're welcome to it. <laughs> Thanks, really. Thank okay, you. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks indeed. Let's go to Ricardo in Kailicha. Hi. Yes, yes, Rudy. Mm. My question to the scientists is, um, you know, when we have our suppers and our lunches, we normally tend to take some fluids with it, like a cool ring. So um, is it a good thing for your digestive system? If it oh. is, uh, what type of fluids do you normally eat? Uh, I actually am the opposite, Ricardo. I can't drink anything while I'm eating. I want to taste my food and then later I can drink something. But Chris... Um, the answer is that your body is very good in health at regulating fluid balance and food balance. And the best advice is to just listen to your body. And if you feel thirsty, go and drink something. And there's a very fantastically good scientist in South Africa in Cape Town called Tim Noakes. And I was watching him on Horizon the other day, uh, this BBC documentary, talking about this very subject. And, and the point, I mean, he stresses is that, you know, our ancestors 
and animals all over the planet do not have companies telling them what to drink and when not to drink and what to take into their bodies. They do what comes naturally to them. There are billions of people on Earth who don't have this advice and manage to live quite healthily. So just listen to your body and do, do what you feel like doing. And if you feel like drinking something, drink something. There's no perfect way of doing this, but you can certainly upset the apple cart if you take too much fluid on board or if you dehydrate yourself to death. So just do what feels right for you and tr try and ignore uh, merciless advertising and relentless advertising that's pushing various things at you for various health reasons. Water is a fantastic thing to drink. So is tea, so is beer, and so is South African red wine. <laughs> I love it. You can stay. I love it. <laughs> George in Florida, hi. Uh, good morning to you both. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask the scientist, what is the progress on the Iter Tokamak, the fusion reactor in France, if he knows? Hello, George. Yeah, this is um, Iter, which is the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. And this is uh, one of the world's biggest fusion projects. And it's a multinational collaboration. So there are countries all around the world. I think more than 20 countries have all got together. And rather than put money in, what those countries have said they'll do is to put things in. So different parts of the reactor and its assembly and its operation have been parceled out to different countries. And so different people are using their local expertise to produce components, which will then be shipped to Cadarache in France where the reactor will be assembled and is being assembled. The site is there and the production is ongoing. People are assembling things. I was talking to a group who are leading the engineering in the U.S. for their contribution last year, and they're motoring ahead. Um, they're doing very well. Uh, so we won't know for a long time yet whether this thing is, is going to run. And we, know, we know it's going to work. We know it's going to have some fusion going on. But the thing with fusion power at the moment is that we're putting almost as much energy in as we're getting out. And the thing they're really striving for here is to get a self-sustaining fusion reaction where we actually have a net surplus of energy and we can tap some off for our use as well as running the plant. Mm -hmm. And that's really where they're going with this. But it, it is an experimental reactor. This is not going to provide limitless free power overnight. This is very much a, a stepping stone towards where we see the use of this uh, piece of physics in future. Right. And uh, Chris, I have an email here. Peter wants to know, how do scientists know how to make a flu vaccine if viruses can be different every year? Well, excellent question. And of course, very relevant at the moment because it's flu season in lots of places. Mm. And the answer is that the World Health Organization, the WHO, have linked up with as many countries around the world as they can. And in winter, participating countries will send samples of the flu strains that are affecting members of their population into the WHO. The WHO will then look at those viruses and they ask, have they changed very much from what we're putting into the current vaccine? And they do this by testing the vaccines on ferrets, which are a good animal model for flu, and they can also make antibodies and then put the antibodies on cells and also put viruses in with the cells. And if the antibodies soak up all the virus and stop it infecting the cells, they know that the vaccine is working. Now, if the sample's coming in from, say, let's say the Southern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere winter suggest that the viruses that are circulating are beginning to change in a way that makes the vaccines not work anymore, what the WHO will do is to then select samples of virus that are coming in in those countries 
which look like they are the most common or dominant circulating type. And they will then use those viruses to make a new vaccine strain. And you do this by mixing the virus with a virus that grows very well in eggs. And then you mm -hmm. put the virus into the egg and make virus in eggs. Or you do it in cultured cells. And then you use that as your vaccine strain for the northern hemisphere in their winter, which comes six months later, and vice versa. So because flu goes round and round the world every year in this giant sort of circuit, they've got a very slick operation for doing this. But it is guesswork because we don't know up until flu arrives in any country whether or not the guess is going to be the right one. But usually they do hit the nail on the head. Right. And uh, just in response to your comment about water, tea and beer, uh, somebody has sent us an SMS, Chris, saying, please elaborate on the benefits of beer. My wife is listening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot of calories in beer. Oh, um, not bad, Chris. <laughs> well, it's interesting because if you ask an archaeologist, um, and in fact, I was always confused by this when I was at school because you would go to historical sites in so the Middle Ages where people were building things, and part of the payment that people would receive wouldn't be money, but it would be beer and food. Hmm. And you think, how did people survive when they were basically being force-fed beer all day? <laughs> but the beer that they were drinking historically wasn't really strong stuff like we tend to buy in a bar today. It was much weaker beer, and it was good to do what they did, which is to do a degree of um, fermentation, because the alcohol would have the effect, actually, of killing microorganisms hmm. in the liquid. And this would make the liquid safer to drink, because uh, it's only in relative recent times that we've had water supplies and been and been... Uh, cognizant of the risks posed by microorganisms in water and the number of cases of, of waterborne disease around the world every year is still testimony to how easy it is to succumb to contaminated water and so drinking beer historically was a good way to avoid that problem so you could argue to your wife that uh, what you're doing is preventing yourself from getting intestinal disorders because you are drinking something that is safe to drink <laughs> that said uh, be careful with the strong stuff Mm, mm. Okay, Fraser in Constantia, hi. Uh, um, my question is about golf. It's settle the best, actually. Um, so playing golf and what the, the one oh, guy... That, I mean, that, that, that line is really bad. I'm sorry about that, Fraser. I'm putting you back on hold. Let's see if uh, uh, if, if Shusha can help you. John in Germiston, hi. Hi, Reddy. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Um, I've got a question for the scientist. Yes. I've got something on my on my ankles called Pomphilix. And I've had this for about five years. I've been to the doctors and it's unbearable scratching and bleeding that I cannot get uh, rid of. So what are you asking? If there's anything that I can take for, for this, you know, because I've been on cortisone, I've been on creams and, uh, and just not going away. Hello, John. Um, I'm afraid I, I'm not a huge dermatological expert and I'm always a bit cautious about giving medical advice on medical things um, that I don't know a huge amount about because it's not my part of the body. So if it's all right with you, can I ask you to email me? It's chris at thenakedscientist.com and I will quite happily have a look at what the latest literature is or talk to one of my dermatological friends here and see if there's anything new that's come along because... Um, Yes, you can use steroids, but then there might be other things that people are, are trying now and I might be able to advise you, but I'd like to take their advice first, if I may. So drop me an email and I'll respond to you. 
Okay, John, we're putting you on hold. Mava will help you with the Naked Scientist's email, and then you can ask your question. Peter in Parktown. Hello there, both of you. Uh, I'm going bald. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going on 30. I'm going bald, and I was thinking of having a hair transplant. How do they go about transplanting hair? That they remove your own hair and transplant it into, into your head again. How, how do they go about hair transplants? Hi, Peter. Um, the uh-huh. answer is that the reason people lose their hair in that very stereotypical pattern is called male pattern baldness, and pretty much 100% of men get this. Um, the reason is that it's down to testosterone, and there are various drugs that you can use which prevent the conversion of testosterone to an active form in the scalp, and the, the problem is that there are side effects of those agents. But this causes the hair follicles in those areas to effectively wither. They don't die, but they seem to produce hair, which is very, very short and drops out easily. But not all parts of the scalp are affected, and this is why we end up with this bit round the side and at the back, which tends to be fairly thick and, and well covered compared with the bit on the top. So when you do a hair transplant, what they can do is to take the hair follicles from the area which is well covered and move them. And you, you have, um, in fact, there's a robot that uh, is doing this now so that surgeons don't have to painstakingly do it. You take a little punch biopsy, effectively, out of the scalp and remove some of the hair follicles intact. And then literally, like planting rice in a paddy field, they just plonk it back in in the other bit of the scalp and the hair follicles reestablish themselves there and produce healthy hairs. And they're not vulnerable to the testosterone effect in the same way that the hair follicles were that were there to start with. Um, so it's, it's a fairly long procedure. It can take many hours to do this, which is why they've got a robot that can harvest the hairs and plonk them in again now in some centres. But it is very effective, and a number of people have uh, have had very, very effective hair transplants. And Wayne Rooney recently went on oh, record yes. and said, I'm having a hair transplant. Um, I haven't actually had any looks at close-up pictures of Wayne Rooney lately <laughs> um, to see whether I can spot a discernible difference. But um, it's, it certainly works. Mm-hmm. I think there has been a difference. I think there has. But, uh, Chris, before we let you go, here's another email. Somebody wants to know, how come animals don't suffer from infertility? Well, the thing is that we wouldn't really know, and they probably do, but um, because we don't have fertility clinics for animals and the majority of animals don't live as our pets and we don't try and breed from them, we wouldn't necessarily know whether or not there is a fertility problem. Um, I think that's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of statistical thing that you tend to notice. But also, as humans, we are very much exposed to various chemicals in the environment that could have an impact on our fertility. Um, and, and this includes things in water and things in food, the plastic cartons that we use and that kind of thing. They're all leaching plasticizers, um, which could have effects on our endocrine system. There's quite good evidence, actually, that we're all being exposed and that in some countries that exposure, um, not to very high concentrations, but to very large mixtures of different chemicals, could be having an effect uh, through what's called endocrine disruption. Mm. So it may be just an exposure thing, and animals living in the wild are less exposed than we are living in the houses, drinking from the plastic cups and, and, the, and the water that we get. Okay. Chris, loved chatting to you. Have a lovely, lovely weekend. We have a long weekend here in South Africa. It's Heritage Day on, on Monday. Is it Sunday or Monday? Okay, I don't know. All I know, Chris, is that I'm having a long weekend. Have a nice one. Chat next Yeah, put week. a sausage on the bri for me. And, uh... <laughs> oh, you know about that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you have, a, have a good one. And, Friday. Um, yeah, as I say, put, put a burger on for me or a sausage and, I'll, and I'll, come and I'll come and join you. And how many should Thomas put on? 
Oh, he, he, needs a, he needs a barbecue to himself. That's what I'm saying. There'll be none left for you if Thomas <laughs> is around. So thanks, Chris. We'll chat next Pleasure. week. Pleasure. Have bye a good bye. weekend, everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye. And, of course, our conversation with the Naked Scientist are always rather conversations with the Naked Scientist are always available as podcasts. And thank you for bringing your questions, for phoning, for sending the emails. We really love this.